Welcome to the audio channel of Dr. Sadat. Preach Christ, teach the Bible, make disciples. Church, our sermon this morning is going to be called The Sun Declares, and I ask the church to stand. And please turn to Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, as we will first pray and then read the Word of God. Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. Your word is a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servants to deliver a word of power so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. So Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 to 9 says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So church, once again, the sermon today is called The Sun Declares, and today's sermon is going to answer one question. It's going to answer the question, do you know Christ? And it's going to provide three distinct answers. Do you know Christ? Now, just to orient everyone, we're in Psalm chapter 2. There are four separate stanzas of Psalm chapter 2. In the first stanza, a narrator describes cosmic rebellion, a revolt of earthly rulers against heaven. In the second stanza, the Father speaks. And he says, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now we're in the third stanza, verses 7 to 9, when the son speaks, when the son declares. And what does the son begin by saying? He says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Not perhaps, not maybe, not possibly, but I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. There's certainty, there's absoluteness, there's a positive assuredness of this fact because what the Son has to say is so good, he has to tell the world about it. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now this verse is very, very special. Why? Because this is the first time in the Old Testament where there is a mention of the father-son relationship in and amongst God. We're actually given an insider's look into a conversation God is having in and amongst himself, where the father speaks to the son and says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
Now, we're in the Old Testament now. If you read the New Testament, there's a mention of the Father and the Son all over the place. But now, here in the Old Testament, we get a peek, we get a foreshadowing of what is to come. And the Father says, today you are my Son. I have begotten you. So I ask you at the top, do you know Christ? And here's the first answer. Do you know Christ? Because if you did, you would know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Do you know Christ? Because if you did, you would know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Here's proof. Matthew 3.17, And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Mark 9.7 says, A voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. Luke 9.35, Then a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my Son, my chosen one, listen to him. And then in John 12.28, Jesus says, Father, Glorify your name. Then a voice came out of the heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So do you know Christ? Because if you did, you would know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He always was and always shall be the Son of God. However, Jesus is the Son of God, not in the way that human beings think of sons. Let's make this plain. I am a natural biological father, and I have a son. If you took a look at my cells under a microscope, you would see some stuff. If you took a look at my son's cells underneath the microscope, you would see different stuff because my son is a combination of both my DNA and my wife's DNA. Now, symbolically speaking, if we took a look at God the Father under a microscope, we would see certain stuff, a certain essence, a certain usia. But if we take a look at Christ the King, the Son, under a microscope, what do we see? We see the same stuff. We see the same essence. We see the same usia. Because in the Bible, when it talks about sonship, it's not referring to a biological relationship. It refers to obedience. So, for example, the people of Israel and angels are called sons of God, not because there is a biological relationship, but because they're obedient to God. Jesus calls the Pharisees sons of the devil, not because the devil had relations with a human being. No, because they were obedient to their symbolic father, the devil. So do you know Christ? Because he and he alone is the Son of God. And he is the Son. Capital T-H-E, Son. Because he is the only one to obey the commandments of God fully. 
And everyone who has a saving relationship with Jesus Christ can be called an adopted son and an adopted daughter. Now, why is sonship important? Because sonship involves an entitlement to what your father has. When you are a son of someone, you now are an heir to all of their possessions. You now are entitled to the possessions your father has. And since God the Father has everything, owns everything, the world is his, the Son of God now has an inheritance to everything, which is why the very next verse, Psalm number 2, verse 8 says, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. This is a promise that points forward to the future. So when Jesus Christ the King asks... The entire world will be his, and Christ the King will usher in his kingdom. So all of heaven and all of earth will be his. And the best news is this. When you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and profess faith in him, and you're holding on to him tight and not letting go, because you are now in him and are in the body of Christ, you now become a co-heir a co-regent, a co-inheritor of that promise of everything. So as pastor always tells us, the best is yet to come. And in that future time, in that future inheritance, not only will the best keep on going, but the next day and the next day and the next day, what you have to look forward to is the best for eternity. Now what is the next verse. It says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. What is a decree? It's a statute. It's a rule. It's a prescription. And the thing that we have to realize, beloved, is this. When the Lord makes a decree... It will come to pass. When a sovereign God sends forth his word, when he makes a decree, it will come to pass. There's no doubt, there's no hesitation, there's no uncertainty. When the decree of God comes face to face with an immovable object, that object will move because whatever the Lord decrees will come to pass. Reality bends to God, not the other way around. God does not bend to reality. So when the Lord decrees, creation must bend its knees. Because when the Lord decrees something, it will come to pass. Now let's apply this. In the medical world, sometimes people are given bad diagnoses. They're given poor prognoses, where they're told something like, there's no hope left. There's nothing that we can do. We can't help you anymore. All hope is lost. 
And that leads to despair. That leads to feelings of being lost. But common sense tells us in the medical world, if you're ever given a negative or a dire prognosis, what's the next thing that you do? You get a second opinion. Because that first prognosis, that first diagnosis, isn't going to be the absolute barometer of what's truly true. Because what men decree may come to pass, but when the Lord decrees something, it will come to pass. So when in our everyday lives we have rambling thoughts, we have self-condemnation, we have doubts, we have fears, we feel shut out, we feel worthless, we feel as if we don't deserve the grace and the love of God. Those internal feelings aren't a barometer, aren't a measure of what's truly true. But what is a measure of what is truly true is the decree of the Lord. Because our doubts, our feelings, our voices of self-condemnation mean nothing if they're not seconded by the decree, by the word of God. So if you are feeling helpless, if you are feeling lost, if you are feeling as if there is no hope, you have to get a second opinion based on the decree of God. So if you feel despair, you have to get a second opinion based on the word of God, which says no truth seeker is condemned to wrath. If you feel as if you have no hope, you have to get a second opinion based on the word of God, which says God did not cut you off for mercy. If you feel as if you're about to call on God, his word says, do not seek me in vain, but seek and you shall find. So when we purposely look for him, he is meant to be discovered. What the Lord decrees will come to pass, and you have to get a second opinion. Now look at how this changes our view of reality. If we go to Luke 4, so Psalm number 2 points forward to Christ the King. This is hundreds of years before Christ walked on the earth. So if we go now to Luke 4, we find Christ being tempted by the devil. And on two different occasions, the devil says, if you are, if you are the son of God, he was trying to inject doubt. He was trying to inject hopelessness. He was trying to inject an attack on Christ's identity. Now, if Jesus just stopped and allowed that poison to paint his view of reality, there would be no hope. But what did Jesus do? He got a second opinion. And what does God's decree say in Psalm number two? It says, you are my son. The devil says, if you are the son of God, and now Jesus can go back on God's word, which says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, period. The devil then said, if you bow down and worship me, 
I will give you all the ends of the earth. What could did Jesus now do? He got a second opinion based on the decree of God. And what did God say? What does God's word say? It says, Jesus, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Just ask of me. No strings attached. Just ask. And the world will be yours. He had to get a second opinion based on the decree, based on the word, based on the promise of God. And this so neatly relates to our everyday lives because this is exactly what our faith is. Our faith means we look back to what God has already done, to what he has already said, and we see he has never let us down. He has never let us go. And based on what God has already done, we now have confidence in the future and hope looking forward. We are convicted. We have seen what God has already done, which is why we can now look into the future and say, yes, Lord, I believe in you. Amen. Because a past decree gives us present confidence and a future hope. Because whatever the Lord decrees will come to pass. So what has the Lord decreed? What has the Lord decreed that gives us assurance, that gives us certainty? He's decreed three things. He has made a decree about himself. He's made a decree about our salvation. And he's made a decree about our adoption. So the Lord has made a decree about himself. Psalm 105 says, For the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. Let me say that one more time. For the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. God has decreed about himself because a decree is only as valuable, is only as worthwhile as the one making it. And God's decrees are reliable because God is the one making it. God is holy. God is true. God is just. He's the very definition of truth. God couldn't lie to you if he tried because he's God. Everything that he says, everything that he does comes from the very definition of what is true. God can't go back on his promises because he can't deny his unyielding loyalty to all of his children. He couldn't go back on his promise if he tried. And God is also full of grace, full of hesed, full of everlasting favor, do giving us what we don't deserve. And the hesed, the grace, the steadfast love, not only is certain and sure, it is also immutable. It is unchanging. So neither time, nor eternity, nor life, nor death will change the love that God has for us. And because God is infinite, his love is infinite. His love is unyielding. He's not going to love you today and stop loving you tomorrow because his love never stops. 
So God has decreed about himself, and we can be certain about the decree maker. God has also decreed about our salvation. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 12, I'm going to take snippets of the verses, but Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 12, the text says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, according to the kind intention of his will, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. This is what that means in plain English. That we are saved based on God's favor, God's grace, God's work alone. And that is one of the most reassuring things you will ever hear. Because if my salvation were up to me, I would have lost it a long, long time ago. Because God has decreed about our salvation, what he decrees will come to pass. There's certainty. There's assuredness. Let's make this really plain. If our salvation is symbolically represented by an airplane taking off from this world and landing in paradise, God is the one who buys your ticket who puts you through screening and puts you on the plane. People may have different experiences on that airplane. You may be in first class, lounging all the way flat, getting three-course meals, having a delightful time. You may be in the back of the plane, sitting next to a baby, kicking your seat, sitting next to someone who's 400 pounds overweight. You're miserable. You may be the person in the bottom of the plane, you're cold, you're damp, you're hungry, and you're miserable. There are going to be different experiences in that process. But because God has decreed about your salvation, no matter what happens in the plane, guess what? That plane is going to land in paradise. It has a 100% on-time rate and a 100% arrival rate. Because if God decrees that you are elect, that you will be saved, nothing can stop it. His grace is irresistible when it comes to our salvation. Now, you can call this process what you want, the foreknowledge of God, predestination, election. Some people have a problem with the fact that God has decreed whether or not you will or will not be saved. They say, that's not fair. I want to participate in my own salvation. To which I agree, it's not fair. It's not fair to God. Because he gives us everything when we cannot reciprocate. So for the people who would say, That our salvation, our predestination, our election isn't fair. I personally don't think they have a misunderstanding of what God's word says. I think they have a misunderstanding about themselves. Because I can never honestly look at myself in the mirror and say, you know what? If salvation is in my hands, I can be sure. Because if salvation was up to me, 
I would have lost it a long, long time ago. Because what man decrees may come to pass, it perhaps will come to pass. But what God decrees will, must, has to come to pass. So God has decreed about our salvation of which we can be certain. God has also decreed about our adoption. Galatians 4, 4 4-7 says the following, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Here's what this means. When you profess faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are now an adopted son. You are now an adopted daughter in the family of God. Where you no longer call God by an impersonal name like sir, or you salute him, but you can call him father, a term of endearment. And because of Jesus, who was the firstborn in this family, symbolically speaking, he's the big brother that everyone looks up to. He's the big brother that everyone seeks to imitate. So our election means you're not only saved, but you're now incorporated into God's family. So we're not only adopted sons and daughters, we can call each other brother and sister. And when we are an adopted son, when we are an adopted daughter, we are certain about our father's protection. Now I know when I get up here, I talk about my son a lot, and by now you're probably tired of hearing me talk about him. But what I find is that being a parent makes so much sense of what the Bible says, because it's about real life. I can't leave these stories alone. So here we go. Once again, I'm a biological father of a three-year-old. Now, no matter what happens in my life, no matter what happens in my son's life, I will always be his father. When I was potty training him, and I said, Nigel, don't poo-poo in your diaper, and he poo-pooed on the living room floor and said, Daddy, look, I didn't poo-poo in my diaper. I wasn't happy. I wasn't ecstatic. I wasn't joy, full of joy, when I had spent the next 20 minutes cleaning up child's poo-poo from a carpet. But in spite of the fact that there was a rift, there was a schism between us, guess what? I never stopped being his father, and he never stopped being my son. When he becomes a teenager, and he says, Dad, you're too oppressive, I want to get out of here, I want to do my own thing. 
No matter what words are exchanged, nothing will change the fact that I am his father and he is my son. When we are both old and gray and I'm 90-something and he's 70-something and he has grandchildren, guess what? I will still be his father. He will always and forever be my son. Here is the point. When God, out of his grace, chooses you and calls you my adopted son, calls you my adopted daughter, there is nothing that will never, ever, ever, ever separate you from the protection, from the love of your father. Because nothing will change the love. Nothing will change the adoption. Nothing will change the grace. There is nothing that you can do which will disqualify you from your, from your father's protection. There's nothing you can do that will forfeit your rights as an adopted son, as an adopted daughter, as an heir to the inheritance that your heavenly father has prepared for you. And this truth, so God has decreed about himself. He's decreed about our salvation. He's decreed about our adoption. This is a truth that the world needs to hear because the truth is what will set you free. I want to send a message to two different types of people right now. You're not right here in this congregation, but you're hearing these words online or on your phone. I want to speak to two different types of people. The first group is you have a relationship with Jesus. You know who God is, but you believe the lie. You've listened to the doubts, you've listened to the fears, and they've convinced you that you are not an adopted son, you are not an adopted daughter, and you are now on the outskirts, outside of your father's house, wondering, will I ever be invited back in? You've listened to the doubts and the fears which tells you you are not a child of God and therefore you act in a way consistent with that false identity. Someone has deluded you. They've robbed you of who you really are. And because you've believed the lie, you're now acting in accordance with it. And you're outside of your father's house, looking in the window, wondering, will I ever be invited back in? Will my father ever have enough grace for me? Will I ever be good enough to be welcomed back into my father's house. The other group I want to talk to are people who don't know Christ. You don't know about the Bible. You've heard peripheral stories about God in church from other people, but you felt something pulling you in. You felt something drawing you to Christ and God's word, but you've listened to the lies. You've let other people tell you who God is instead of listening to what God has to say about himself. You're convinced that you have to get your act together before you enter into God's house. And you're convinced that you are forever unworthy and undeserving of grace. And here's the reassuring message I have for both groups. Because once again, God has decreed about himself... He's decreed about our salvation, and he has decreed about our adoption. And there is nothing that can forfeit your rights to your father's protection. You are on the outside of your father's house. 
You feel like you're an intruder. You feel like you're an alien in a strange land. But what you fail to realize is that the grace that God has for you, he has already prepared a seat at his table. The fatted calf has already been slaughtered. The meat has already been cooked. It's already been seasoned. And there's a plate waiting for you with pepper sauce and a big glass of water with the seats with your name on it. And the only thing you have to do is to open the door of your father's house and take the seat at his table. Because what, does, what will stand in eternity isn't what I say, think, or feel. What will stand in eternity isn't what you say, think, or feel. What will stand in eternity is not what other people say, think, or feel. The only thing that will stand in eternity is the decree, is the word of God. And God's decree says that nothing will forfeit your rights to your Father's protection. So seek him and you shall find him. Yeah. Open the door to your Father's house and take your seat at his table. You are not strangers, you may enter, for a child of God is always a child of God, not a hired servant. And no father wants his child weary exploring the world. Every father wants their child in his house. No matter how the relationship works, he wants you in his house, at his table, and in your father's house. Now you are free. Now you are free to love God and do as you please in your father's house. So no matter what your feelings, that isn't relevant. What is relevant is the decree of God. Psalm 55, 22 says, Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never, he will never, he will never allow the righteous to be shaken. John 6, 37 says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not, I will certainly not cast out. So God's decree gives us certainty, and he's given us certainty about himself, about our salvation, and our adoption. God has also decreed that Christ is king, who is the only certain thing in an uncertain world. The last verse of our text, Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, says, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Beloved, there's a picture that we're about to show on the screen. Now for those of you watching us or listening to us, this is a picture. If you were to Google Jesus, this is the type of picture that'll pop up. What we see as a man with a very gentle look in his eyes, he has long brown hair down to his shoulder. This is what we call the popular version of Jesus. But here's a question I have, who is this man? 
because I have no idea who this popular person is. I'm told it's Jesus, but this Jesus seems to be very disconnected from what God has decreed, what God's word says. The Jesus that we're reading about here in Psalm number 2 talks about shattering them with a rod of iron, breaking them with a rod of iron, and shattering them like earthenware. The popular Jesus, who's the guy in the picture, is a very all-inclusive guy. He's actually a guy who stands for nothing because everything goes. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you believe. It's basically all comers can come and believe what you want. This popular version of Jesus stands for nothing and therefore is accepting of everything. And the problem is, after reading the Bible many times, reading what Jesus says, reading what Jesus does, there's a disconnect between the Jesus of the Bible and the popular Jesus. Because the real Jesus, the Jesus that Psalm number 2 was talking about, stands for truth, stands for holiness, and stands for righteousness. So I asked you at the top, do you know Christ? Because if you did, you would know he is not the popular Jesus. He is the Christ of the Bible. Now let's clarify this point. Christ the King, it's foreshadowing to the future, saying, you shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. So here now is the difference. The Jesus of the Bible is described as wielding a rod of iron. Now, why is it a rod of iron? Because a rod of iron is meant, a rod of iron will not bruise. It is meant to break. And the earthenware which the Jesus of the Bible is going to shatter demonstrates the effortlessness with which he will conquer those who stand against him. This imagery is purposeful because earthenware doesn't fight back. So that's the bad news. Those are those who do not profess faith in the Messiah and who do not trust in Christ the King. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. In Hebrew, the word for a king's scepter and a shepherd's staff come from the same root. So the rod of iron that a king would hold in his hand and the staff that a shepherd holds come from the same root word. So when you are the real, legitimate Jesus of the Bible and you're looking out at those who are engaged in cosmic rebellion, when you're looking out at the world, looking at the lions and the foxes and the bears that are trying to harm your sheep, you hold a rod of iron in your hand which will break those opposed to you and for your sheep. But the same Jesus now, who is fully, who's fully graceful and fully just, when he interacts with his sheep, now that rod becomes what? A shepherd's staff. And now he deals with his sheep as the shepherd king, who he tends to with love who he tends to with grace, who he loves and cares and nurtures for and purposely works to make sure his sheep are protected and well cared for. He draws them to the water and leads them by 
greener pastures. This is the Jesus of the Bible, beloved, because in order to realize the full gospel, the full breath of what God has said, the reason why the gospel is really good news is because on the flip side, there's also really bad news. And that's what makes the good news so good. But as long as you have trust in, as long as you believe in, as long as you put all of your hope into Jesus Christ, the Messiah, you never have to worry about meeting the rod of iron, Shepherd King. You can trust and believe in the one who holds the shepherd's staff in his hand. So the last point is this. Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ? Because if you did, you would know that he is your greatest hope. In a forest fire, the safest place that you can be is where the fire has already been because it's already consumed material. It's already consumed matter. The earth is already black and there's nothing left for the fire to gobble up. So as Psalm 34:22 says, everyone who takes refuge in Jesus now takes refuge in the one who's already endured the wrath, who's already endured the fire of God. So when you cling on to Christ and are in him and trust in him and have faith in him, the wrath of God had all, has already been poured out on the cross. And now you are safe. Now you find safety and security in the one who stands in the way where the fire has already been, where the wrath and the justice of God has been satisfied. So do you know Christ? Because if you did, you would know that he is your greatest hope. Now, as I mentioned, what the Lord decrees will come to pass. He has decreed about himself. He has decreed about salvation. And he has decreed about our election. He has decreed about the Jesus of the Bible, who is the Son of God and our greatest hope. And I urge, I exhort, I implore all those hearing my words to seek the Messiah and you shall find. Look to the bleeding Savior and you will be saved. For the only door, the only path to salvation to the Father is in Jesus Christ, Christ the King. Church, God bless you. Listening to this sermon by Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable content and resources, please visit WCSK.org.